Good morning. If you'd like to turn in your Bibles to John chapter 10. Thank you to Bruce and Pam for leading music today. Um, on Friday, sorry about that. Um, on Friday, I actually decided to forever retire from watching college basketball, so I don't know anything that happened after <laughs> Friday. Um, and, uh, and, uh, Illinois is a good team. They, uh, they, they could go to the Final Four for sure. Um, John chapter 10. So we are getting closer and closer to Easter, and um, in John, Chapter 12, verse 12 begins the triumphal entry. Jesus goes into Jerusalem for the final week of his life. And um, that's the week before Easter. And so it's, we're on a course to get there, Lord willing, on Palm Sunday, which is the Sunday before Easter. Um, and so we're in, continuing in the Gospel of John. Um, I should also probably mention that this year... With grace, uh, we're not going to be able to do our joint Easter service. Uh, Lord willing, we'd like to do that again next year. The school wouldn't let us use the gym, and just with everything still with COVID, so we'll be, uh, let's be, be here, and we'll celebrate Easter, and that'll be great. And uh, I'm hoping and praying that it'd also be a great opportunity for some other people from town to, to join us that day. Um, and I uh, also should mention, Sonny was asking about uh, about Jude, he is back at their at their home. Uh, got back last night, and, uh, but please continue to pray for Jude. Uh, Ruby said that he's still pretty weak and um, I think still in, in some pain. And so just keep both of them in, in your prayers. I know that means the world to them. Um, John chapter ten, and we'll be finishing up this chapter this morning on this beautiful day, beginning in verse twenty-two. At that time, the Feast of Dedication took place at Jerusalem. It was winter, and Jesus was walking in the temple and the colonnade of Solomon. So the Jews gathered around him and said to him, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Jesus answered them, I told you, and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me, but you do not believe because... You are not among my sheep. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. The Jews picked up stones again to stone him. Jesus answered them, I have shown you many good works from the Father, for which of them are you going to stone me? The Jews answered him, It is not for a good work that we are going to stone you, but for blasphemy, because you, being a man, make yourself God. Jesus answered them, Is it not written in your law, I said, you are gods? If he called them gods to whom the word of God came, and scripture cannot be broken, do you say of him whom the Father consecrated and sent into the world, you are blaspheming? Because I said, I am the Son of God. If I am not doing the works of my Father, then do not believe me. 
But if I do them, even though you do not believe me, believe the works that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I am in the Father. Again, they sought to arrest him, but he escaped from their hands. He went away again across the Jordan to the place where John had been baptizing at first. And there he remained. And many came to him. And they said, John did no sign. But everything that John said about this man was true. And many believed in him there. Would you pray with me? Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for our Savior. And Lord Jesus Christ, who is the good shepherd, who is the bread of life, who is the way and the truth and the life, who is the door, Lord, and he is the way to you. He makes you known. Lord, we praise you for the ministry that he had and for the life that he invites us into and the relationship with you that he invites us into. Lord, we don't deserve that grace or goodness, but he freely gives it. And so may we rejoice in that today and every day that we have a great Savior. Lord, we continue to lift up people, Suzanne Bruns, Lord, and for her recovery and pray that she can go home this week, tomorrow. Lord, we pray for, continue to pray for Marsha and her recovery from this back surgery. Lord, it's encouraging to hear that she is on the upswing, but continue to pray every day, every hour. She'd just be getting better and better. Continue to pray for that recovery. Lord, we also do pray for June. Lord, as he's back home, and we're thankful that he is back home with Ruby today, and I pray for his health and recovery. Lord, we pray for our time in your word today. We pray that it can point us to you. Lord, we pray that it can stir our love for you and worship for you. In Jesus' name, amen. We have four Gospels, and they're all telling the story of Jesus. They're all consistent. But we do have different things within the four Gospels which they emphasize. Different Gospels emphasize different themes and different theological points, sometimes in different ways. I'll give an example. In the Gospel of Mark, the disciples are often depicted as not being the smartest group, not understanding who Jesus is, not understanding his teaching. We see more of their own sin failures. That's an idea that's present in the other Gospels, but it's especially emphasized in Mark, much more than, let's say, the Gospel of Luke. In the Gospel of John, to the point where we are in this book, chapter 10, we haven't even really seen a whole lot of the disciples when you really think about it. Almost halfway through. Now, in all four of the Gospels, you see run-ins between Jesus and the religious ruling authorities. You see them plotting against Jesus, and you see them ultimately lobbying the Roman government to have Jesus crucified. But as we've studied the Gospel of John to the point where we are in this book, it's especially prevalent in John's Gospel that we see these run-ins with, Jewish, with Jesus and the Pharisees and other religious leaders. Where they're questioning Jesus and Jesus is explaining to them who he is. I feel like we've preached a similar message about ten times so far in this book. And then isn't a complaint 
in God's word. The Apostle John wrote this gospel after the first three gospels had already been written. And one of the things that he included in his gospel account of the life and ministry of Jesus is this constant barrage of attacks which Jesus received throughout his ministry. To be fair to the Pharisees, there's no indication that it's always run-ins with the exact same group of leaders and teachers. But for us as the reader, we get to see all of these different controversies between Jesus and the Pharisees and all the various ways in which they try to disregard Jesus, disregard his ministry, his teachings, his mission. And we see that again in today's passage. Now, we do see a lot of run-ins, as I mentioned, but these interactions are all unique. No one is quite like the other. In this passage today, we see significant claims about Jesus' messianic identity and salvation and his relationship to the Father. And with that, we'll jump right into the passage today. And at the beginning of this passage, John gives us the setting for the story, beginning in verses 22 and 23. At that time, the Feast of Dedication took place at Jerusalem. It was winter, and Jesus was walking in the temple in the colonnade of Solomon. John says it's the time for the Feast of Dedication. Just to give a brief reminder, a theme that we see that is unique to John's gospel is how much John talks about various Jewish feasts and festivals. To this point in John, we've seen Jesus already at two Passover feasts. There's an unspecified feast in chapter 5. Some scholars believe that it was Purim, but we don't know that for sure. Chapter 7 and most of chapter 8 are at the Feast of Booths. And now we're at the Feast of Dedication. A minor Jewish holiday more commonly referred to and known to us as Hanukkah. And as I mentioned, Hanukkah is a little bit more of a minor Jewish festival. I think we're so familiar with it in America because it's the same time of year as Christmas. But it's not one of the high holy days of Judaism. Hanukkah actually isn't a story that's even in the Old Testament at all. Hanukkah commemorates an event which happened in the year 167 B.C., which is after the last of the prophets of the Old Testament were writing, but before the time of Christ. That's called the intertestamental period. So in 167 BC, Israel was under the occupation of a Syrian dynasty known as the Seleucid Empire. When the Syrian Seleucids had occupied Jerusalem, they regularly defiled the temple. They would do things like slaughter pigs at the altars within the temple. Things intentionally done to blaspheme the God of the Israelites and deliberately to break their own laws and to mock their religion and beliefs. But ultimately, again, that was a mockery of God. The Israelites had a revolt led by a man named Judas Maccabeus, where the Jews retook Jerusalem and the temple and temporarily were independent. And so Hanukkah commemorates that entire event. So contrary to what a lot of Americans, I think, tend to fall into, 
is that Hanukkah is not a Jewish Christmas. It's really more like a Jewish Independence Day. Fast forward to Jesus' time, the Jews no longer have their independence. They're under Roman rule and authority. And as we've talked about already in John's Gospel, they were not happy about that. And for many of the Israelites in Jesus' day, they believed that the Messiah would again be someone who would bring freedom for Israel. For many, they thought of the Messiah as a great war chief. And with all of that, we look back to our passage that John has just tied to Hanukkah. Again, the Feast of Booths in chapters 7 and 8, that's a feast that's celebrated in the fall, in October-ish. Now it's winter, just a few months before Jesus goes to the cross. And on this Hanukkah, at this Feast of Dedication, the true Redeemer of Israel is in the temple. Hanukkah was a celebration of the faithfulness of God. And in Jesus, we see the greatest example of God's faithfulness to his people. At Hanukkah, they celebrated reclaiming the temple. Jesus himself is the temple, the word made flesh who tabernacled among us. He is the ultimate and true fulfillment of what Hanukkah means. But sadly, so many... This was right in front of them. The end of verse 22 mentions that it was winter. Several scholars think that the note about it being wintertime is actually intentional because John is trying to sort of set the mood of the story. It's like when you watch a movie and they have different costumes or different colors or different types of weather, different times of year, different times of day that all help create the, the mood of the story. When you hear it was a dark and stormy night, you know that it's usually not going to be a really fun, playful kids' story. The fact that it's wintertime seems to help set the mood of this story. Yes, it is winter, and that's when Hanukkah is, and it's cold and colder in terms of the weather, but it's also meant to symbolize the cold and chilly disposition of so many of the Israelites in their view of the authority of Jesus and to God. The last piece of this setting is that Jesus was inside the temple in Solomon's portico. In other temple appearances in this gospel, we sometimes see Jesus in places like the courtyards of the temple. But here he's inside Solomon's portico. And that's a place where the early Christians actually preached the gospel as it's recorded in more than one place in the book of Acts. Something else that's significant about this passage is that with all of the interactions that we've seen between Jesus and various religious authorities throughout the Gospel of John, this is his final public discourse that he makes in John's Gospel. Verse 24, beginning of verse 24, and this first section is the In the notes, I think I just called it the Christ. Jesus is talking about his identity. So the Jews gathered around him and said to him, I'll pause right there. The fact that Jesus is, that the Jews are around Jesus, it's almost like it's giving an adversarial position, that almost like Jesus is being surrounded. Rest of verse 24. How long will you keep us in suspense? 
If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. It's interesting that throughout this gospel, Jesus has displayed his divinity, his divinely ordained ministry through signs which have manifested his glory. He's talked of his relationship to the Father. He's talked about being from above and giving eternal life. But John has not specifically recorded Jesus addressing himself as the Christ. He's used other terms which speak to his divinity, such as son of man. But he doesn't call himself the Christ. Now in the Gospels, several people recognize Jesus as the Christ, the anointed one. The Gospels of Matthew, Mark, and Luke all record Peter confessing that Jesus is the Christ. And Jesus tells Peter to tell no one. Certainly in that Jesus is acknowledging that he is the Christ without explicitly saying so. We see in John chapter 4 when Jesus interacts with the Samaritan woman at the well. Verse 25, the woman said to him, I know that the Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. There are others in the Gospels who acknowledge that Jesus is the Christ. John the Baptist does. One of the thieves who is executed with Jesus does. An angel in Luke chapter 2 after Jesus is born. And even the demons recognize that Jesus is the Christ. But Jesus in the Gospels never publicly says the exact phrase, I am the Christ. When Jesus is brought to trial before the Sanhedrin, they interrogate Jesus as to whether or not he is the Christ. Just to give one example, quoting from the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 26. But Jesus remained silent, and the high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God, tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. Jesus said to him, you have said so. But I tell you, from now on you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest tore his robes and said, He has uttered blasphemy. And in that gospel, that is the final straw for them deciding to take Jesus before the authorities to have him crucified. So, in John's gospel... Actually, I mean, in Matthew's gospel, they ask Jesus if he is the Christ, and he gives an answer which clearly indicates that he is without saying that he is. And even that pushes the Sanhedrin over the edge. And so returning now to John's gospel, it's Hanukkah. The Pharisees ask, how long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Now, clearly... Jesus is the Christ. We know that. But he knows that they'll say it's blasphemy if he says he is. Also, another part of the challenge is when you remember what I said earlier about the origins of Hanukkah and about the military expectation that many people had about the Messiah, that the term Christ had a lot of military and political baggage for some groups of people in the first century. And Jesus did not come to bring an insurgent military leader that many of them might have expected. Verse 25, 
Jesus answered them, I told you and you did not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me. It's interesting that Jesus does not affirm that he's the Christ in this passage. But he also doesn't deny it. Instead, Jesus points to, to the unbelief in the works that he's done. And at this point in John's gospel, Jesus has already done numerous miracles, numerous works, numerous signs. Water into wine, feeding multitudes, walking on water, displayed supernatural knowledge about the Samaritan woman at the well, healed the son of a Roman official, healed a man born lame, healed a man born blind. And those are just the miracles that John records. John concludes his gospel by saying that Jesus did so many more things during his ministry that the whole world would not contain those books. Jesus has given ample display of his messianic and divine ministry. And what he's telling the Pharisees is that those works bear witness to who he is. But Jesus gives a powerful indictment and the ultimate reason as to why they don't believe. Verses 26 and 27. But you do not believe because you are not among my sheep. My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. Why doesn't this group believe in Jesus? Because they're not his sheep. Clearly, that language harkens back to the preceding section where we were last week. But there is a key change. In the previous section, Jesus says things like, the sheep hear his voice. And when he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out, when he has brought out all his own, he goes before them and the sheep follow him for they know his voice. The Good Shepherd passage uses a rich metaphor that makes multiple points, but one of those points is that the sheep recognize the voice of the shepherd. But in this section, when Jesus says, you do not believe because you are not among my sheep, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. So in the first section, the point is that the sheep know the shepherd In that section, he's telling the Pharisees that in this section today, he's telling the Pharisees that they do not know the shepherd because they're not his sheep. They do not know the shepherd and therefore they're not his sheep. Jesus has also talked about the works that he has done in his father's name, which bear witness to him and who he is. So not only Do they not know Jesus, but they don't truly know God? John 1.18 tells us that Jesus has made God known. A verse that I keep going back to because I think it's one of the most important sections of this book. In chapter 5, Jesus says, The Father who sent me has himself borne witness about me. His voice you have never heard. His form you have never seen. And you do not have his word abiding in you, for you do not believe the one whom he has sent. They're not his sheep. They don't know Jesus, and they don't know God. The world makes up its own gospel, tells men that they can know God on their own terms, or that there are many ways to God. Jesus is how God is known. 
And truly pursuing God is meant to lead a person to Jesus. Because they're working together. They are one. Jesus continues speaking to them in our section. He talks of the benefits and privileges of knowing him. Verses 28 and 29, chapter 10. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. Jesus is talking about his authority in these verses. Jesus gives eternal life from which his sheep will never perish. And says that the sheep will never be taken. They'll never be taken from his hand. They'll never be taken from the Father's hand. Jesus also talks of the role of the Father in salvation. That the sheep are given to him from the Father. This idea echoes a passage in John chapter 6. All that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life. And I will raise him up on the last day. Jesus talks of the salvation to those who are given to him. He says, My Father has, who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. There are two main ways that's interpreted. The Reformed view is that God has chosen those who will be among the sheep and who come to faith in Christ. The Arminian view is that God knows who will believe in Jesus, and in knowing who will believe... Those are the sheep. Both of those views lift up the security and salvation which is found in Christ alone. That no one is able to snatch away a person who is a sheep of the Good Shepherd. And that there is eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Good Shepherd. It cannot be lost. It cannot be taken away. Because we are not our own source of our own hope. It is Christ. He is the author and perfecter of our faith. And because it is the work of Christ, we can have confidence that he will bring his work to completion. We are not our own saviors. So when we make a mistake or mess up or sin, we can be tempted to be so condemning and certainly, we should repent and turn away from our sins. But when you know Jesus, we should also rejoice in his grace and mercy. It can be so easy for some of us to be so weighed down by guilt and shame. But let us faithfully follow the good shepherd where he is leading us. We can put so much pressure on ourselves to be perfect, to have it together. But let us not lose sight in the times when we do struggle, and we all do, that we have a Savior. And for the person who believes and trusts in him, no one is able to snatch us out of the Father's hand. I talk a lot about 
not having a low view of sin. Because when we have a low view of sin, we have a low view of grace. We should never be flippant about sin. But we can also go to the other extreme, where we can make our faith entirely about our performance, where we treat God's view of us based on how we're doing, how good we are. And when we do that, grace is no longer grace. And it's exhausting. And it robs us of joy. And it distracts us from the goodness of Christ. And it makes us think that we're the ones who are our own saviors. Jesus has talked in the previous verse about his relationship to God and doing the Father's works. Verse 30 He says one of the most theologically rich things in this gospel. I and the Father are one. A short verse, but it says so much. What does it mean? Does it mean that he is the Father? No. John 1.1 says that Jesus was in the beginning and that he was with God. Showing a distinction of persons. A word that theologians would later use is that the Father, the Son, and the Spirit are one in essence. Jesus and the Father are so united in essence, mission, glory, and power that they are one. They are one in all of those domains. No singular verse in the Bible builds the doctrine of the Trinity by itself. But a verse like this is important in how we understand the Trinity. The Bible is clear that there is one God. The Shema in Deuteronomy chapter 6, quoted daily by observant Jews. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. There is one God. But Jesus has said that he and the Father are one. But he's not God the Father. It's because within the Holy Trinity, there are three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That is the historical teaching of the church. That is the clear teaching of the Bible. In our day, it's it's a difficult concept to wrap our minds around. But it is the clear and obvious teaching of the Bible. While in our day, it's intellectually difficult... In Jesus' day, it was a radical idea. But it matters that they are one because it is because they are one that Jesus is able to make the claims that he makes, make the promises that he makes, give the guarantees that he gives. If he and the Father are not one, then being told that he's your shepherd and that he gives eternal life don't really matter all that much. He has to be divine for his teachings to be authoritative and to matter to our eternal hope. There have been many throughout church history who wished to relegate Jesus to some sort of secondary figure. But he and the Father are one. I love how it's summarized in the Athanasian Creed. Just to quote a section of that. Faith is this, that we worship one God in Trinity and Trinity in unity, 
neither confounding the persons nor dividing the essence. For there is one person of the Father, another of the Son, and another of the Holy Ghost. But the Godhead of the Father, of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost is all one, the glory equal, the majesty co-eternal. And there's more that can be said. Back in the Gospel of John, the crowd had asked Jesus if he were the Christ. He did not affirm nor deny. But he does say that he and the Father are one. They take that as blasphemous. Verse 31, the Jews picked up stones again to stone him. We don't see panic from Jesus, but he simply asks, I have shown you many good works from the Father. For which of them are you going to stone me? Fair question. Jesus calls his works both good and from the Father. He's been doing miracles. He's lived a righteous life. When they respond, they somewhat acknowledge the goodness of Jesus' works. Verse 33. The Jews answered him, It is not for a good work that we are going to stone you, but for blasphemy, because you, being a man, make yourself God. So they take Jesus, they charge Jesus with blasphemy. Now, had anyone but Jesus made that claim, that would indeed be blasphemous. But his whole ministry validates what he's saying. We know it. The Pharisees don't. As he often does throughout the Gospels in crisis situations, Jesus gives a brilliant response. Verse 34, Jesus answered them, Is it not written in your law, I said, you are God's? To understand what he's saying there, Jesus is referencing Psalm 82. In that passage, in that psalm, it says, I said, you are gods, sons of the Most High, all of you. Nevertheless, like men you shall die and fall like any prince. In that psalm, the word gods is used to refer to the Israelite judges. No, they are not divine, obviously. But they were judging as emissaries of the Lord. With that in mind, Jesus continues to speak to the Pharisees. Verse 35. If he called them gods to whom the word of God came, and scripture cannot be broken. So Jesus is appealing to the scriptures. The Old Testament uses this terminology. Where Jesus says the scripture cannot be broken, he's pointing out that he and the crowd are all in agreement as to the truthfulness and trustworthiness of the scriptures. And that God's infallible word uses this term. So they agree that it's justified in the instance of Psalm 82 to use that language when referring to people in the Old Testament, to Old Testament judges. Ergo, that language is not inherently blasphemous. And as a brief aside, there's a lot that could be said for Jesus saying, Scripture cannot be broken. For now, I'll just give the observation that it's Jesus himself who's saying that about the Scripture. Jesus continues his argument in verse 36. 
Do you say of him, of him whom the Father consecrated and sent into the world, you are blaspheming? Because I said, I am the Son of God. In that verse, Jesus points to his divinely appointed ministry. He is saying that he is greater than the judges of the Old Testament. And if the term gods could be used for those men as God's emissaries in the Old Testament, it is all the more appropriate to use that terminology for Jesus himself, the Son of God. Now that is undoubtedly a big claim. And so Jesus again appeals to his reputation for who he is. Verses 37 and 38. If I am not doing the works of my father, then do not believe me. It's interesting that they never take him up on that. Ever. But if I do them, even though you do not believe in me, believe the works that you may know and understand that the father is in me and I am in the father. Again, that's a simple test. He makes the claim about who he is. He says that if he's not doing the Father's works, then don't believe in him. But they can't do that. At the end of verse 38, Jesus makes another important statement that informs our view of the relationship of the Father and the Son, where he says, The Father is in me, and I am in the Father. Again, this unity within the Trinity of the divine persons. But again, Jesus gives the Pharisees a challenge. Point out the holes in his ministry. He's not simply asking them to take his word for it. He's pointing to the activity of his life and ministry itself. But again, the Pharisees don't engage with that. Verse 39 Again, they sought to arrest him, but, they, but he escaped from their hands. They have no legitimate grounds to condemn Jesus. They don't believe in him because they're not his sheep. The story concludes, He went away across the Jordan to the place where John had been baptizing at first, and there he remained. And many came to him, and they said, John did no sign. But everything that John said about this man was true, and many believed in him there. Again, it's interesting to consider John the Baptist's ministry. He came as a witness to bear witness to Christ. In John chapter 1, John the Baptist specifically says that he is not the Christ, but a witness. And he foretold the things that would happen in the ministry of this messianic figure, of the Christ himself. And some people, the Pharisees can't follow through on Jesus' challenge. But there are people who see the things that Jesus is doing. And recognizing that Jesus actually is who he says. Amid all of the opposition Jesus faces, these long discourses with people who do not believe, Twice at the end of this passage, the Apostle John, who wrote this gospel, continues to give us glimpses throughout the ministry of Jesus that all along the way there are still people believing and trusting in who Jesus is. It's a microcosm of the human condition that many don't believe. Many reject Jesus today. Many hate Jesus, hate his teaching, hate his church. Many ignore Jesus. 
ignore his resurrection and the grace that he offers. And for Christians, that can be discouraging and disheartening. But every day, there are still people coming to faith. There are people seeing the things that Jesus did. There are new sheep being added to the pen. There are new names being written in the Lamb's Book of Life. There are more people coming to know the truth. And that should be an encouragement. And that is why we preach the gospel every week. To continually be reminded of the truth. And to continue to tell people the truth of who Jesus is. That he is the good shepherd of the sheep. Who is one with the Father. And from whom the sheep can never be snatched away from the Father's hand. To the glory of God. Would you pray with me? Our Heavenly Father, we do thank you so much for your Son and the gift of eternal life that he makes available to all who believe in him, regardless of what we've done, regardless of where we are right now, or that we are invited to come and to know Jesus. Lord, for all of us, may that be the state of our own heart. May it be our passion for life. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you.